Thank you for joining us today for an update on topics and issues we're seeing in this current real estate market. I'm Laura Prouse with Crest Insurance Services. Today, we welcome attorney Mark Carlson from the Carlson Law Group. Mark has been defending real estate professionals since 1993 and has worked with Crest for over 20 years as a founding member of our legal panel. Along with Mark, we have Dave Miller, Regional Vice President of Fidelity National Home Warranty. Dave manages the Crest Advantage Home Warranty Plan, which ties into Crest's E&O insurance. We have a lot to cover and a lot of updates to do today. So I'll go ahead and hand it off to both of you. Thanks, Laura, uh, for the introduction and for being with us today. Mark, thank you for being with us today. You know, it, it's been a few months since we uh, talked about some of the major issues in the, the California real estate market. And I kind of feel like since, uh, since those few months have passed, it's kind of been like the Wild West. You know, the, the inventory has been extremely low. Um, there are 10 to 15 offers on every property and contingencies seem to me to be a thing of the past. Uh, and luckily, I think over the last three or four weeks, things have started to normalize, uh, which is probably good for everybody. Uh, so I wanted to get back with you and just take, uh, you know, get some updates uh, from you on a few different topics. Um, Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good, good. Let's uh, talk back doing this again. Yes, yeah, and I know the uh, the members of Crest and all the real estate professionals in California appreciate these uh, very much. So we're happy to continue to do them. Let's talk about property management uh, for a moment. An eviction moratorium, I believe, was extended till September. Um, what update do you have for the real estate professionals? And do you see any other extensions coming? And if so, what are we going to continue to see? Well, it, uh, uh, the when the moratoriums will ultimately lift, of course, is unknowable. It's it, it is a highly politicized uh, issue, uh, and you know I'm sure landlords who are out there that aren't getting paid rent uh, and who are were unable to uh, um, get the advantages of of some of these uh, relief programs administered by the state, you know, from the from the federal monies, uh, you know, they we just they just want to get back to normal, uh, and so, but it's all these issues have just made it so complicated that. Whether you're a property manager or whether you're a you know a listing agent looking to to sell a property that's tenant occupied, you still like we mentioned in the last uh, uh, seminar on this, it's you got to have your your uh, owner uh, whether it's in a lease situation or whether it's uh, on a uh, a sale situation where you're trying to list a property for sale, have the owner go get legal advice, go to talk to the uh, their attorneys, uh, find out exactly what's going on with this particular property. Uh, you know, in the city and the county uh, that it's in, because there are a lot of overlaying uh, restrictions uh, as to uh, moratoriums. The statewide uh, moratorium that we've talked about <clears throat> is, um, you know, just one of, of things that could potentially uh, impact uh, an owner's ability to evict a, uh, a tenant. That's crazy. So if these continue to, to extend, do you see those maybe happening into next year? Well, so I think in the last go around, the extent the the um, the extension to September also contained a clause that said local ordinances can't extend beyond that. So the question really becomes, what's going to happen with the state? Uh, but you know, then you see uh, again, it's such a, a highly politicized uh, issue. You see uh, the the Supreme Court um, uh, statement that uh, the federal eviction moratorium couldn't uh, or was only allowed to extend. Or, I'm sorry, it was only allowed to go through when it expired. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a statement that 
if it were to extend beyond there, it couldn't be done by the president, it would have to be done by Congress. But then you see members of Congress that are saying, well, you should just do it anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you, you know, you never know what a local uh, municipality is going to do uh, in, you know, in the face of state law. So it's, it really is hard to, to know. You just need to have, this is one area where agents, uh, whether they be property managers or, or selling listing agents, just need to punt and have their their own their clients go talk to an attorney and get get advice from them because it's just too complicated uh, for an agent to navigate. Right. In your opinion, is this uh, this whole eviction moratorium is it directly tied into COVID? Like, if the cases are getting better across the U.S., is this going to possibly go away? Because it seems like now the cases are getting worse. And now, you know, on the on the street, we're hearing that it could go a lot longer because of that. Is it directly tied into COVID in cases? I, I don't think anybody knows that because these these ordinary or these moratoriums just come out of the blue, right? It's the, the, the all the, all of the California ones have all been extended uh, within a day or within 24 or 48 hours of when the predecessor was going to uh, expire, um, and so they just come out. There's just no way of knowing. That's crazy. Well, let's talk about non-contingent offers. You know, I mentioned there was a Wild West period where there were you know, uh, to, so that buyer's offer was hopefully more acceptable and accepted. Uh, there were no contingencies. And of course, you've mentioned to us in the past the dangers of not having, you know, home inspections and, uh, you know, maybe pest control or home warranty and stuff like that on there. Um, what update do you have on maybe the pitfalls of just, I guess, more from the buyer's side for non-contingent offers? Well, we're seeing, you know, as we, we run the, the, the Crest Risk Management line uh, and then uh, we have another uh, risk management program that we handle calls for. Uh, and, and we're starting to see just recently uh, houses being on the market a little bit longer, uh, offers not being or offers containing contingencies uh, not being non-contingent, uh, which I think is good uh, it, because it's dangerous, as, we, as I previously mentioned. So hopefully the market uh, is, is um, uh, and I know that it's probably like, putting uh, fingernails down a chalkboard to say, hopefully the market's cooling off because you know the industry professionals always love a hot market because everybody makes more money. Uh, right. But I think it, the, 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 the market being as hot as it was and pressuring uh, agents to recommend or go along with non-contingent offers was really just a, an unnecessary risk. So and from that respect, I'm glad that it seems to be cooling off, but who knows? Uh, maybe maybe uh, it goes back to where it was. It's, I'm just, saying or, or uh, telling you what I've been seeing lately through the, through our risk management programs. Right. And I think you mentioned to us a couple of weeks ago, you're seeing an uptick in contingencies for sellers and that there's a form, the seller's purchase of replacement property form, the SPRP. What, what exactly does this form do and how does it help the sellers? Well, so when a uh, seller in this, in, in a tight market like this wants to sell their property, obviously they want to have a property to move to, unless they're just cashing out of the market, which some sellers are doing. Uh, but the the uh, seller purchase of replacement property form uh, was revised in in 2017, really to make it more user friendly for the uh, for real estate professionals. Uh, the prior version of the form did not clearly state when uh, the inspection periods and when contingency periods on the uh, on the the. The, well, I guess what they call the down leg transaction uh, would occur, you know, is it upon acceptance of the buyer's offer or is it upon removal of the seller's contingency, uh, you know, once they find replacement property. Uh, so the form is a little bit uh, more user friendly, but it really should be filled out carefully. 
because you don't want to have a circumstance where uh, the seller is can't find a property because the market's so tight or gets beat out on a number of offers that they try to make, uh, but then you know then is locked in to sell uh, their property because that's when they uh, nearly 100% of the time sue their listing agent saying, what'd you get me into? Right, right. Let's move over to wire fraud. I mean, I was just watching the news this morning and, and a company was taken for $610 million. This, this is just not going away. And of course, it's, um, it's heavy in real estate too. Uh, but what continual issues uh, do you see with wire fraud? And, and honestly, what can, what can real estate professionals and buyers and sellers do to protect themselves? Yeah, they're getting more sophisticated all the time. And just when people uh, figure out solutions to stop it from happening, the bad guys come up with new, uh, with new you know, methods in which to, to dupe people out of giving uh, or, or sending money to, to uh, false uh, bank account addresses. Uh, and so really it just is diligence. You know, it's, uh, it is calling before and after you send a wire uh, so that you know, the people know it's coming. Uh, and then calling to confirm that it got there. Uh, not if you have a, a telephone call from somebody, and this just happened uh, uh, about uh, four months ago to a, a client uh, that, or on a case that I was involved with, where uh, somebody had called and said, "Yeah, I'm so and so from ABC Escrow. Uh, I need you to send. You know, I need to to uh, uh, have you fill out this information so that we can, you know, adjust you know the the uh, uh, wire." And so people are now impersonating. Uh, the, the professionals that are involved in the transaction. And it, it isn't just a matter of emails like it was before. Uh, and so you have to be uh, really diligent, double check. Uh, whenever it comes to a wire, you have to, again, uh, a, a call before and a call after, uh, because if, if you make a, send a wire and then you call who you think you're supposed to be calling uh, and uh, they don't know anything about it, you know, then you've got 24 hours in which to stop the wire. But if you if you don't do that, then after that 24 hour period passes, it's uh, nearly impossible to, to get that money back. Oh, and the one you told us about, I think it was a hundred a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. It's yeah. Well, you know, it's it's it, it can be uh, sellers' proceeds, it can be buyers' deposit, it can be refund of buyers' deposit if there's a canceled transaction. I mean, any time that there potentially could be a wire of size. Uh, you know, that's, that's where the bad guys uh, are, are uh, uh, you know, trying to pounce on. Right. And of course, we always see at the bottom of every escrow officer's email uh, under their email template, um, you know, a, a disclosure about uh, wire fraud. And there's, um, you know, we will never ask you for X, Y, and Z and, and uh, stuff like that. So are those helping, I would imagine? Well, who knows? I mean, everything together is helpful, but, you know, it's... Um, the the when you look carefully at emails that that start the wire fraud process, there's there's always something in there that identifies or that that would allow you to identify it as a fraudulent email. Uh, it could be Mike Jones, and there's two eyes in Mike uh, versus one, and that's how the bad guys do it. They create fake URL or fake URLs, and then then they make subtle changes uh, to the uh, um, uh, to the address. Uh, Mike L. Jones, where, whereas mm -hmm. before it was just Mike Jones. Uh, and then, uh, but, you know, the, the, the research shows that uh, people spend something like, you know, one uh, less than one tenth of a second looking at the, at the line. So you're just sort of, you know, looking, looking at the ray line uh, just until your mind processes, okay, I know who that is. And then you go on to something else. You don't look, people don't normally read uh, the, the address lines uh, critically. Right. 
Let's move over to a subject that I think, and we've talked about this before, I think many are overthinking this, and it's the HHDA, the uh, home hardening. Um, I think the bill was passed in January AB 38, which was the home hardening bill. And then in July, we had a recent update with uh, defensible space. Um, what's your take on this bill and, and a spe uh, specifically the form, the HHDA, uh, and what can parties do from a risk management uh, standpoint um, to be in compliance? Well, so it is a, um, um, an effort, of course, by the state uh, to try to get people to create defensible spaces around their property. And, and knowing what that defensible space means uh, is, uh, is important. So let's start with that, and then we'll, we'll roll into what the form requires. So defensible space, it's in Public Resource Code 4291, uh, and there it's defined as, as sort of two zones. Uh, the first within 30 feet of the house, and then secondly, within uh, 100 feet of the house. And the idea is just to uh, properly maintain vegetation so as not to allow extra fuel or unnecessary fuel to uh, crowd around a house that could exacerbate or, or make that house more vulnerable to, to, uh, to fire. So the uh, it, there isn't a black and white standard. It just is a, a maintenance program uh, or effort uh, in order to, to minimize the risk. And in fact, within uh, the uh, if, um, resource, public resource code 4291, it specifically says that uh, single specimen trees uh, or other vegetation that's, that are uh, well pruned or maintained uh, are exempt from the requirements. So it's, you, now you're hearing people like, well, I might have to, uh, if I don't properly uh, figure out whether my house is in a high fire zone, and then the buyer might be left with having to, you know, spend thousands of dollars in, in weed abatement, you know, or cutting, uh, you know, big trees down. Well, that probably is not going to be the case. Uh, it's, it's um, you know, I've been litigating cases on behalf of brokers uh, since uh, 90, three, basically. Uh, I've had exactly zero cases where uh, there was a, a circumstance where a fire marshal came by and ordered a bunch of things to be done with a property uh, after close of escrow and the buyer was upset that they had to comply. You know, you don't, there, there aren't in most jurisdictions, uh, now there could be some, so you have to be careful. I'm not saying this is a, a blanket rule, uh, but in, in most circumstances, you know, you're, you get a weed abatement uh, note and the fire department just sort of comes by and it makes sure. And if you don't, they, they pester you again. It typically is not, uh, you know, a circumstance uh, where uh, the fire department uh, or local fire, fire marshal are requiring you to re-landscape your property to be in compliance. So, in compliance. Uh, <clears throat> so but with that said, uh, you, the form uh, is now required. Uh, well, the form is created by, C by CAR in order to uh, contain the, the, the disclosures and warnings mandated uh, within the statute. Uh, and so uh, the, if a property is built before 2010 and is in a high or very high fire zone, uh, then the disclosures need to be given to the, uh, to the buyer. Um, it also is only required uh, when there's a transfer disclosure statement that's required. So if you have a house that's being sold in the administration of a trust, or if it's an REO property, uh, you know, or the other uh, sort of uh, um, not often seen exceptions to the, when a TDS is required, then you don't have to do, you don't have to provide the home hardening form form either. Uh, and so the, then the question that we're getting uh, from everybody is, well, how do I know if it's in a high or, or very high fire zone? Then it also applies um, 
outside of those zones if you are live in an area where you abut up against sort of rolling hills and vegetation. So if you're if you're you, you're lucky and you get that nice view of your house on a on a uh, development and you're at the very end and you overlook a great big canyon, uh, whether you're in a high or very high fire zone, you're going to have to make the disclosures, uh, assuming it's built after or before 2010 uh, in that circumstance uh, as well. And so uh, the so the question about, well, where do I find it? Well, take a look at the NHD report, right? That's where that's uh, it's uh, typically listed there, uh, although that's Unfortunately, not you know a one-stop shop because sometimes it'll be missed in the uh, in the first uh, you know the hot sheet or they call it I, I I'm not the one-page summary that's at the uh, at the front of of uh, reports uh, sometimes it isn't there but it's buried uh, you know back within the body of the report so it's it's uh, 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 important to look through the entirety of the NHD report to see whether or not uh, it's in a high or very high fire zone uh, it can also be too that uh, a property is, is not listed in a high or very high fire zone, uh, but it's in a, a wildfire overlay kind of zone uh, that um, then the statute doesn't apply to that. Okay, what if I'm in a fire zone, but it is, but it's worded something differently than high or very high. So the, the statute allows a seller to make the required uh, disclosures, even if it's voluntary, so or voluntary. So maybe I don't know, and I'm having a tough time figuring out, or the report I got back is confusing. Well, there's nothing wrong with the seller making the disclosures in any event. And all the disclosures are, uh, are, a, are there certain characteristics of the house that are listed on the form that make it, uh, that make the house more vulnerable to, uh, to fires. So, you know, you could have a, a seller could take the approach. I don't know one way or the other, but I'm going to fill it out anyway. So then I know I'm covered irrespective. Right. Did I hear you mention that this bill doesn't apply to houses built before 2010? No, it applies to two houses built before 2010. That's so if it's built after 2010, it doesn't apply. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. And of course, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, you know, Fidelity National Home Warranty has disclosure source uh, NHD, and we're all over this. And uh, and our reports um, obviously have the home hardening in there and, and the disclosures about the uh, the fire zone, uh, not only on the summary sheets in the beginning, but through the report uh, extensively. So. Um, real estate professionals can check that out. Mark, anything else on uh, home hardening that you want to add? Yeah, so there's another part to it that is, I think, causing a lot of people consternation also, because it talks about um, <clears throat> written proof uh, that the property uh, is in compliance with defensible space. Uh, and so uh, there, again, there's no strict requirements uh, in uh, most uh, jurist fire jurisdictions don't have a procedure to do an inspection uh, for um, uh, whether property is in compliance with defensible space. But assuming for whatever reason that the seller within the six within the six month period prior to the offer uh, had a, uh, a report or a note uh, from from a, a, a government agency saying that it wasn't compliant uh, compliance, then the the seller uh, has to give the the buyer uh, a copy of that report. Uh, if there's a local ordinance that requires documentation of compliance, and, and there are, are some, I've heard uh, just on an industry meeting earlier this week that, uh, that uh, Marin County uh, and, um, oh, there was another county up in, nor in Northern California, sort of in the Northern Sierra Nevada area, uh, has, have uh, compliance uh, ordinances. 
And so if there is a local requirement, then the buyer must agree that within a year, uh, they'll obtain the written documentation that they're in compliance. Uh, and um, if the seller has one, uh, then the seller has to give that, uh, or if, I'm sorry, or if the, if the ordinance requires that the seller obtain the written compliance uh, or documentation of compliance, then the seller has to provide that uh, five days prior to close of escrow. Uh, again, so those, those are ones where it's hard to, to give a, a, you know, a standard rule because it, it just, it, it's, um, it, it depends on uh, what the local ordinance is. And that could change as things go forward. We're just at the very beginning of this. So you could have uh, local uh, um, governmental entities uh, uh, creating ordinances that don't exist now. So we have a new bill, we have a new disclosure, and we have a new CAR form. I mean, we've had hundreds of those over over the period uh, of years, but why is everybody overthinking this one? Is it because it's just something new? Well, I think because it's a mandatory form. We haven't had a mandatory form, I think, since the transfer disclosure state. Either the Either lead-based paint or trans I have to, I'm testing my own memory on uh, history here, but we haven't had a mandatory form in, a in an awful long time. Uh, so that gets everybody, uh, um, you know, up in arms. And then, then it's okay, well, if it's mandatory, then I must obviously uh, pay close attention. Otherwise, I'm going to be liable. But, you know, really, again, the, I think that the, the, the risk of or the exposure, uh, if this is done improperly, is fairly remote. You know, it's meant really just to uh, educate people to uh, to look at their house and see if there's ways that they can uh, prune and, and maintain the vegetation in such a way to, to make it less vulnerable to fire. Uh, but really for there to be a claim arising out of this form, you would have to have a fire after close of escrow uh, that, um, and then somebody is able to show that, uh, but for the, uh, the mistakes on the form that that fire, that the house wouldn't have been damaged in the manner that it was uh, in that fire. So you can see it's kind of a remote, you know, circumstance. And then the other, the other potential, um, the other potential risk is, you know, if a buyer buys a property and then to, in order to obtain uh, written uh, um, documentation of compliance uh, that they have to spend a lot of money in order to do that, uh, which again, that's, it's, it's hard to know because there aren't, there aren't uh, very many local ordinances currently. Right. If the NHG report fails and the disclosure fails, who's ultimately responsible? Is it the sellers or the NHG report, the NHG company? Well, that's a good question. You're talking about a statute that's, you know, not even a year old yet. Um, but if, the, again, you know, another, a, a seller could say, you know what, I'm going to voluntarily make the disclosures anyway. I don't care what the, they could say, I have a, I have a, a, an NHD report here that says that uh, I'm not in a high fire zone, uh, but you know what? I would like for my buyer to preserve this home because it's been in my family for generations. And so I'm going to make the disclosures anyway. That's perfectly fine under the statute. Good, good, excellent. Well, we have uh, talked, uh, we've talked about many different topics today and kind of going back on ones that we've talked about in the past. And, and Mark, we always appreciate your time uh, and give us an update on these because um, there's something new every month. So uh, we look forward to the next time that we uh, get to meet with you. And uh, again, we thank you so much for your time. Laura, back to you. Great information as always. Like you said, there's always something new coming in on the market. So it's great that we're able to give this information out. Mark, Dave, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And I'm sure we'll be meeting again soon. And All for right, those Mark. of you who are watching, a copy of this webinar is available on the Crest Insurance homepage if you look under the Claim Prevent blog.